This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Are you too worried about climate change? We talk mental health in the climate crisis with Dr. Susan Clayton, author of the Climate Anxiety Index. Then we go tiny. Pollinators are disappearing at an alarming rate. Now we know the cost in money and lives lost with research scientist Matthew Smith from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health in Boston. I'm Alex Smith. This is Radio EcoShock. In an impossible twist, some of the people fleeing the giant rail tanker fire in Ohio appeared two years before in a movie. The movie shows people fleeing a giant rail tanker fire. Art precedes reality. I feel sad for us and the queer part we play in our own disasters. But out of some persistent sense of large-scale ruin, we keep inventing hope. And this is where we wait. Together. That is from the recently released Netflix film White Noise. It is kind of a disaster comedy directed by Noah Baumbach. The film was adapted from the 1985 novel by the dark American author Don DeLillo. You should see White Noise. This film contains an homage to the industrial packaged life and disaster worship in American culture. Reality on the ground in East Palestine, Ohio, is a hellscape of cancer-causing chemicals. The deadly chemicals leaked out, heading towards the Ohio River and beyond. Incredibly, authorities on the scene ordered the whole chemical-soaked mess set on fire. They would burn off the toxic chemicals, they said. Burning the chemical tank cars spread the toxic load over the eastern United States, and some feared as far as Canada. Of course, Canadian health authorities predictably said that was highly unlikely. Nobody wants to admit this is happening. It took days for national media to report the accident. The truth is still best found, piecemeal in local TV station reporting, with the local angle, or alternative press like Common Dreams. Will the Ohio chemical train cloud become America's Bhopal? It will take years to know. Scientific studies take time, more time to publish. Some health effects, including damaged lungs, take years to show up. Cancers can take decades. But as the song goes in the movie White Noise, the clouds are coming. A long time from now, it is possible people will pass away a few years too soon, poisoned by chemicals used for our plastic one time in Ohio. If you are not worried about climate change, you don't know don't want to know, or you're trying hard not to think about it. But experts find millions of people are suffering psychologically. They have climate anxiety or depression or other symptoms that damage lives. In a worried world, Dr. Susan Clayton is busy. She's an acknowledged expert in the field. Clayton helped develop a scale to measure climate anxiety. She publishes assessments for the American Psychological Association and helped cover this growing problem in the latest report by the IPCC on climate change. In Ohio, at the College of Worcester, Clayton is a social and environmental psychologist. She's also a visiting fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Paris. From Ohio, Susan Clayton, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. It's good to be with you. The Center for Disease Control just issued a serious warning about deteriorating mental health in American teens. 
The CDC said, quote, In 2021, more than 4 in 10 students felt persistently sad or hopeless, end quote. One child in 10 attempted suicide, they say. Susan, this is terrible. The pandemic did not help. But is climate anxiety part of it? And how would you know that? Well, I would say it's definitely part of it. And we know that uh, really for several reasons. One is just what people say and what young people say. They are talking about it. The second is surveys that are done often with nationally representative samples that show really high levels of worry about climate change and about the way um, climate change is going to impact people's personal lives. And then third is some of the research that you mentioned that I'm involved in that, that other people have, have also been doing that links anxiety and concern about climate change with established clinical measures of anxiety and depression. Is climate anxiety a generational thing or are older people affected as well? Older people are definitely affected as well, and we definitely see, particularly in Western countries, that younger adults are experiencing it at higher levels, and that's not surprising if you, uh, if you think about it. They are the ones who are really going to be facing the problem in a way that's much less true for people who are already you know, middle-aged or beyond. Younger generations have also grown up with an awareness of climate change, which I don't think was as, it certainly wasn't true for me, except it may be a vague sense that somebody was talking about that, but I don't remember really worrying about it until 20 years ago or so. So yes, younger people tend to experience it more, but we're definitely seeing it in older generations, and in some countries it may actually be stronger in the older generation, so it's not, certainly not just confined to younger adults. Could you describe the kind of symptoms we might see in a person suffering from climate-related distress? Absolutely. And I want to take this moment first to just say, you know, being worried about climate change doesn't mean that you have a mental illness by any means. It's, it's a rational response. In some ways, it's even a functional response because anxiety serves as kind of an internal warning signal to say something's going on here and we need to pay attention and we may need to respond to it. It definitely should not be considered problematic to worry about climate change, if anything, the reverse. However, there certainly are people whose worry is so powerful that it seems to be interfering with their ability to function at some level, and that's when we start to think of it as a problem for mental health, a clinical problem. And some of the symptoms that you might see are um, people report having trouble sleeping or they feel like they just think about climate change all the time. They can't stop thinking about it. Um, maybe they cry. They have nightmares. They can't concentrate. Um, they feel that they can't just enjoy themselves. They can't just take time off to enjoy with their friends or family because they feel like they need to be focusing on climate change. For those people, I think it does begin to threaten mental health and they can benefit from getting help. In coping. The World Health Organization has named mental health as a priority in climate risk and response. Why does this matter so much on a global scale? It matters for several reasons, depending on your perspective. One is that if we think about the impacts of climate change solely to those people who are experiencing them directly, um, so for example, maybe you are experiencing wildfires or uh, flooding from an extreme storm or something like that, those are terrible experiences, but that's a far smaller number of people than 
the number of people who are aware of climate change and thinking about climate change. So if we, if we are fully thinking about how many people are affected, uh, those mental health impacts of climate change awareness are important to consider. And then a second reason is that I think it, it makes it easier for people to understand how they themselves might be affected. So it makes it more real and, and present than just thinking about uh, climate change is something that's going to affect other people. My studio is in British Columbia, Canada. My wife and I lived through the record-smashing heat dome in 2021, and that was after the wildfires had burned half the area around us in a couple of years before. We used to love summer, but now my wife dreads it. We have a bug-out bag packed by the door as the season arrives. You did a study on the 2021 heat dome in BC. What did you find? This is, from a research point of view, fortuitous, although, of course, it was a frightening event. Some data had been collected using social media just before the heat dome that asked people about their level of climate anxiety. So after the heat dome happened, the people collecting the data were able to pivot and very quickly collect some more data. And we did see that there had been a significant increase in climate anxiety um, based on that experience of the heat dome. Well, as you say, it could be floods or huge storms or fires or just unrelenting killer heat. But when the disaster is over, when it moves on, are the mental health effects self-healing? Do people get over it fairly quickly? Not necessarily by any means. Um, some of the effects might, in fact, not even be apparent until a little bit later. So immediately after something like a wildfire or a storm, people might feel relieved and, and grateful and happy that they survived. And then it's only as the magnitude of the impact become clear to them that they start experiencing the mental health consequences so there have been a number of studies that find that you find increased rates of mental health problems a few months, even a year or more after the event. Susan, when in your career did you become aware of the psychological threat rising along with climate change? Yeah, I wish I could say that I had sort of very insightfully thought about it all on my own and come up with the idea all by myself, but that wasn't really true. I had already been studying the ways in which people kind of relate to the natural world and why it's important to them and their sense of who they are. So I began to think or to realize just from listening to people that if the natural environment is important to you, then changes in that environment might have an impact on you. But I was really prompted to look at that issue more deeply by two things. One is a task force that the American Psychological Association put together back in the 2008, 2009, somewhere around then. And then a few years later, I was asked by the nonprofit Eco America to spearhead a, essentially a report that talked about evidence for impacts of climate change on mental health. And what I found was that there was a lot of evidence, but to my knowledge, nobody had yet you know, put it together at that point and said, yes, climate change has an effect on mental health. So it was very new, but... Um, but we already knew that it was going to be a big factor. In the early years, there was some denial among psychologists and psychiatrists even. Uh, they said climate fears were overblown or imaginary. Earlier on, did you feel like an outlier, even among psychologists, and is that changing? Um, yes and yes. <laughs> and I should say that I'm actually not a, a mental health professional per se. I'm trained as a research social psychologist, so looking into mental health itself was a little bit of a, 
new for me, and I define mental health very broadly to include well-being and maybe social interactions, so it's not just about post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, fairly early on in my career, I and a few other people who were interested in the natural environment really struggled to get psychologists to pay attention. And, of course, there were exceptions, but um, it was not the norm, and I, I had multiple psychologists say to me, you know, what does psychology have to do with environmental issues? Ironically, I think that the broader public and people interested in environmental health and conservation were more receptive to the idea of psychology than psychologists were receptive to the idea of focusing on conservation. Um, that's definitely changed, and I think it's a kind of chicken and the egg problem. I don't know which came first, but certainly a lot of uh, clinical psychologists and other mental health professionals are thinking about the effects of climate change, and, and many of them say their, their clients are talking to them about climate change-related anxieties and, and distress. So there's just so much more awareness than there was even five years ago. Uh, with your Wooster colleague, Brian Carazio, you developed a climate anxiety scale. It has been tested and validated in several countries. I noticed studies coming out of Poland and Germany. Uh, what is the tool for, and who should use it? Well, again, it, there's no. sometimes there will be a cutoff score that says if you score above this level, then you're you know, considered to have a disorder. We did not design it for that reason. But what we did design it because people were beginning to talk about climate anxiety as if it were a clinical issue, but nobody had yet demonstrated that. So we really wanted to see can we find a measure that will be reliable as, as a measure and Basically, that was one goal, and then the second goal is to see whether there were these clinical ramifications, whether it was associated with other signs of kind of mental distress. Susan, do you think millions of people could become so anxious or depressed to the point they cannot react to obvious climate damage? Is climate change almost disabling the ability to respond to climate change? Well, it certainly could happen. I don't think it will. At any point, people could become fall into despair for a number of reasons, but usually most people, people are remarkably resilient overall. So most people survive really horrific things and are still able to function. So that's one reason I say it's unlikely. Another is that I think part of the climate anxiety is linked to a perception that nobody's doing anything about it. And certainly in one study I was involved in where we looked at people worldwide, uh, young people worldwide, they reported really high levels of pessimism about, um, they, they felt that their governments were not doing anything about it. They felt that people were ignoring them or dismissing their concerns. So that by itself can contribute to um, that feeling of anxiety and despair. As we as a society, I think we are increasingly acknowledging that uh, climate change is real, even though there's still quite a lot of disagreement about what to do about it. But at least we know that other people are paying attention and that sense that, okay, we're facing something difficult, it's not as bad if you think, nevertheless, there are, there are governmental agencies designed to look into how to respond. There are nonprofits coming together. There's educational initiatives. There's community support. So climate change is the problem, but there are lots of things we can do to alleviate climate anxiety, even without solving climate change. Radio EcoShock does go out over some college stations, and I sometimes worry by communicating the awful scientific truth. Are we just hurting the mental health of young people? Can we communicate climate information safely? 
Yeah, that's a great question, and it's one I think a lot of educators are, are worried about and a lot of parents even who report in some cases that they don't want to bring up the topic with their children because they're afraid that it will you know, harm the child's mental health. And I'll say two very general things. One is that um, you don't want to hide things from people. That's not going to be the answer, especially for a parent, but also for an educator or you know, an, an informational radio broadcast. But the second thing is certainly that there are better and worse ways to convey that information, and you want to be aware of the group you're speaking to. Um, so for, for very young children, you, you wouldn't want to give them too scary of a message. For college students and for adults in general, I think you can emphasize the, the threat, but it's also important to not make people feel hopeless. And so including some information about here are some, here are some hopeful signs, here's a new technology that's being developed, or here's a new policy that's being rolled out. So just to, to balance out, there's a threat, but there's, it's, we're not um, despairing, we're not giving up. You are listening to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith from the College of Worcester. We are speaking with professor and psychologist Susan Clayton about climate and mental health. Susan, can we protect our mental health without denial or dodging reality? I think so. And in fact, in the long run, denial um, is usually not a good strategy. You know, of course, it works in the short term, which is why we do it. Um, to deny there's a problem, we don't have to think about it. But it becomes increasingly difficult to maintain that denial in the face of reality. So um, things we can do include, as I sort of just mentioned, finding reasons for optimism or for hope, but also some very specific things we can do for ourselves. And, and one is, in some cases, actually getting more information. So you mentioned the possibility that more information can actually lead people to be more anxious, which is true if they're not thinking about it at all. But sometimes the anxieties are based on a really apocalyptic vision of the future that's not really grounded in reality. Like, you hear people say things like, the world will be burned up in 20 years, and um, we're not facing anything like that unless something unexpected happens. So getting more informed can help you cope, especially it makes you feel a little, just understanding what's going on a little bit better gives you a, a greater feeling of control. Another important thing to do is to connect with other people who share your concerns, because, again, that just makes you feel like you're not alone and also um, that there are the people who share your concerns and also your values. And then a third thing would be to try and find some way to take action, and that can be whatever way is comfortable for an individual. But taking action, whether it be by protesting or by changing your own household, you know, purchasing and, and, and behaviors, you no longer feel just like a passive victim. You now feel like someone who is taking control of their life in some way. So that can also be a good thing to do. Finally, then a lot of the, te the techniques that are good for mental health in general um, are going to be good for your mental health in this circumstance. So um, getting exercise, getting sleep, going for walks, especially in nature, practicing mindfulness in some circumstances, learning uh, maybe how to be in tune with your own emotions. All of those things can be helpful. Thank you so much for that. I know our listeners will appreciate it. The American Psychiatric Association also has pamphlets online about climate mental health, and as I said, the World Health Organization recently named it as a priority. Tell us about your work with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and what their latest report said about mental health risks of climate. It's 
it's a mixed bag. I was, you know, really happy to be able to work with this group. It's a, for, for those listeners who are not very familiar with the work, there's a central organizing committee, but then the reports are written by hundreds of volunteer scientists from around the world. So it is, it's very, very international. It's pretty intensive work, and it is all volunteer. But it was wonderful to work with this group of people coming from such different backgrounds, all committed to trying to understand and alert people to the consequences of climate change. Um, so my experience was very good, and I was especially happy that they were devoting so much attention to mental health because the previous assessment report, which came out in, I want to say, 2017 or 2018, but I may be getting it wrong, made just very brief mention to mental health and didn't go into it in any detail. So this was really a new emphasis for the committee. And what, uh, you know, to be very brief about what, what we describe is that there is very good, very solid evidence that mental health is already being impaired by climate change and reasons to worry about future impacts. However, there are things that can be done to reduce the extent or the likelihood of those impacts. When you connect with climate scientists, have you noticed identifiable symptoms in them? Are they telling you about anxiety because of what they know? Well, that is another interesting question and one that that I've definitely seen asked by others. In my experience, I haven't seen this so much. Um, And I think the reason is, it gets back to what I was saying a minute ago, that climate scientists are engaged with the issue and they are talking to other people who are also engaged with the issue. So those, uh, those social connections are a really powerful way of avoiding despair and getting meaning from the work, finding meaning in the work you're doing. Now, they are, of course, thinking a lot about climate change and they're very aware of some of the, the negative impacts or consequences or predictions associated with climate change. So I would be surprised if there are any climate scientists who don't sometimes feel pessimistic, but in my personal experience, the overwhelm, you know, the, the dominant emotion has been, well, it hasn't been despair. It's been, we've got something to do, let's do it. And, you know, perfectly happy people when you interact with them on, a, on an interpersonal basis. You don't treat individual patients as a psychologist. You're an environmental psychologist and a social psychologist. What does that mean? Yes, good question. Well, social psychologists essentially try to understand behavior rather than addressing individual distress. So social psychologists study a huge range of things such as interpersonal behavior, attraction, aggression, prejudice, altruism, and just how people think about social issues. So that's kind of my background there. Environmental psychologists is another very broad field, although not quite as broad as social psychology. It tends to focus on how people are affected by the physical environment rather than by the social environment. And so the physical environment can include things such as lighting or temperature or even, you know, the color of the walls or the arrangement of the furniture. But, you know, recent decades, as opposed to at the very start, there's been an increasing focus on the natural environment and how people are affected by exposure to the natural environment, which is it's funny that for a long time nobody was really paying attention to that. But we, we have, again, very good evidence now that natural environments are good for people. They reduce stress, may promote creativity and social relationships, 
to the extent that some, you know, medical practitioners and, and certainly public health agencies are suggesting that doctors should prescribe nature for people and tell them, you know, go take a walk in the woods, and that's, that's the way to stay healthy. You also specialize in the psychology of justice. How does that operate during a climate shift like this? Oh, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, one thing that a lot of people aren't aware of, and I think just it makes sense once you start to think about it, but the, we're not encouraged to, to look at this direction, is the incredible inequities in the impacts of climate change. So we, we think of something like global climate change. We think everybody in the world is going to experience the same effects, but that's very far from being the case. Certainly many places around the world are already experiencing really dire effects that other people are not experiencing. And not coincidentally, the places that are experiencing the worst effects tend to be people that have contributed the least to the problem. So um, sub-Saharan Africa, for example, uh, experiencing you know, high levels of drought, um, low-lying, sort of not economically developed countries, um, very much threatened by climate change. And even within the U.S., we know, for example, lots of problems in the Gulf of Mexico associated with, with flooding and with major hurricanes. So there's that inequitable distribution of harms that is linked to some people sort of getting more benefit from natural resources than the others. And those inequitable, that inequitable distribution is very much linked to being a, a member of a minoritized community or a lower socioeconomic status because people in those communities traditionally, frequently have been sort of shunted off into less desirable areas that are more vulnerable to climate impacts. And we really saw that following Hurricane Katrina, I think, was a really a wake-up call for a lot of people about the racial discrepancies in the impact of the hurricane based on how well your community was capable to deal with the effects. Everybody knows climate is already a disaster and the future looks worse, but oil and gas companies made billions more last quarter. Everybody's buying and flying. It seems we just don't care. Why do you think that is? Well, I would say it's not at all the case that people don't care. If we focus on trying to get people to care more, we're, we're looking in the wrong direction. I think people very much do care, but in some cases they don't know what to do. In some cases they don't think it's their own responsibility to do something, and they assume someone else will do it. And in some cases there's a lot of inertia. We tend to keep doing the things we've always been doing, um, even if they're no longer the right ways of acting given the current circumstances. So I think what we do need is something to shake us out of inertia, and hopefully that will be a good thing, like new governmental policies or new social policies and not a bad thing like a, a real environmental disaster that prevents us from doing the things that we normally do. Well, obviously there are not enough practitioners to treat such large populations, and I presume some kind of social change is needed. What are you and other experts proposing as solutions for better mental health resilience during a climate shift? A lot of people are um, working on ways to support mental working on new ways to support mental health, and that can mean recognizing that you don't have to kind of wait till you have a problem and then call a therapist any more than you have to wait until you, you know, have a, a medical problem and call a, a medical doctor. We can provide people with mental health skills and mental health training in 
other kinds of ways, like through standard education system or community outreach. And there are also ways to support mental health, again, ahead of time. And one of those, I just have been talking about the positive effects of nature on mental health. So making sure people have access to nature, um, even the ability to see trees out your window is associated with, you know, being calmer and being in a better mood. So enhancing the kind of green infrastructure of our cities is another way in which we can promote mental health. But really thinking about what are the organizational arrangements and rearrangements and practices that are needed to support mental health at a, at a societal and at a global level. As we finish our time together, is there anything else you would like to leave with our listeners? One of the things I hope they walk away with is that we all have the potential to be affected by climate change if we're not already affected. And if not our physical health, our mental health, our economic uh, activities and so on. But that we're not doomed. We're not doomed. And um, by attending to the problem, we can find some ways to address it. And addressing it has, in many cases, actual benefits. It's not just avoiding the problem, but but doing so in ways that actually might make our lives better. Our guest, Professor Susan Clayton, is author of many papers, books, and reports on climate anxiety. When not at the College of Worcester in Ohio, Susan is in Paris at the Institute for Advanced Studies. Find links to the papers and reports we talked about in my weekly show blog published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Susan, you are so busy. Thank you for taking time to spend with our listeners. Well, thanks for calling attention to this topic. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. American weather has become one long accident this winter. In the United States, the January 2023 temperature was 5.1 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than average, the sixth warmest January on record. That is according to the U.S. government agency NOAA. Most states in New England set an absolute record for January heat this year, with second warmest for New York and Pennsylvania state. On Thursday, February 23, thermometers went over 70 degrees Fahrenheit in Islip, New York, and Bedford, Massachusetts. That's over 21 degrees C. Crazy summertime weather in winter. Strange, isn't it? Of course, weather whiplash may still set in, High above us, even higher than the Chinese spy balloon, a relatively rare sudden stratospheric warming event has already begun. This could distort the polar vortex below, tossing frigid weather back across the continent for a few days at least. Maybe that will hit Eastern Europe as well. The rest of this winter is, as they say, still up in the air. Do you like vegetables, fruits, and nuts? They are the healthy foods. On this planet, they all depend on other animals, from bugs to bats, to fertilize flowers that become our food. As you know, pollinators are in trouble. Humans change the landscape, apply pesticides, and heat up the climate. Are we headed into a pollinator crisis? Dr. Matthew R. Smith is a research scientist at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health in Boston. In earlier work, he asked... What happens if we lose the pollinators? Now Matthew leads a team adding up the consequences for food and human health as pollinators decline, and that cost is high already in money, 
and lives lost. Matthew Smith, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks. Happy to be here. The opening of your study might confuse some of our listeners. When experts talk about pollinator animals, we might picture wildlife brushing up against plants or something. What is included in pollinator animals? Sure, yeah. Animal pollinators is a broad term. Most of the time we're talking about insects. So this is both bees that you might expect to be big pollinators, honeybees, bumblebees, solitary bees, but also a range of other insects like flies, moths, butterflies, beetles, wasps. All of these play a role in pollinating flowers. And then to a much less extent, but some specific in some areas, are mammals or birds that might also visit flowers, but those are relatively minor players. Yeah, bats are part of the team. Yes, bats are also part of the team. (laughs) So we need one more term here before we get rolling. You say food pollinated by insects, uh, quote, helps protect against non-communicable disease. What is that, and how do non-communicable diseases compare to something that we're all familiar with, like COVID-19, when it comes to premature deaths or disability? Sure. Well, non-communicable diseases are a very broad term, just um, capturing everything that is a disease that is not really infectious or communicable between people. So these are things that are major health risks around the world, like heart disease, cancer, strokes, diabetes. Um, These are all types of non-communicable disease that are just major killers. COVID-19 is a is a communicable disease. It's an infectious disease. So parents are famous for saying, eat your vegetables. How can veggies, fruits, and nuts help us live longer and better? Sure. So this is, um, this is a pretty well-established um, finding that if that, well, okay, let me start over. <laughs> so this is, it's, it's pretty well-established based on a range of epidemiological studies where they've um, watched people while they've eaten a range of different amounts of fruits and vegetables and nuts, and they have found that um, in study after study that eating more fruits, more vegetables, more nuts protects against both contracting and dying from these major non-communicable diseases. So you see lower rates of heart disease, stroke cancers, um, diabetes from eating more of these foods. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it shows that they have a protective effect when, when eaten in, in higher amounts. There's a bit of a puzzle in your results. Your study found the impacts of a pollinator shortage were, quote, greater in middle and high-income countries with higher rates of non-communicable disease end quote, and yet the World Health Organization says of all the NCD deaths, 77% are in low- and middle-income countries. Why are high-income countries more at risk from diet-related disease? What we found in our study was that if pollinators were more abundant, then we had the potential to produce a considerable, considerably higher amount of these healthy foods. And what the happens next is that when these foods are produced in higher amounts, the price might drop of those foods, 
And there's this whole global economic system that kicks in that redistributes those foods around the world. Um, and so different countries have different abilities to pay for those foods. They, there's all these different responses based on um, how willing you might be to buy more of that food if the price drops by a certain amount. And so what we found was that a lot of those foods would end up flowing to countries that could afford them. And so those tended to be middle-income countries, high-income countries. And uh, so those, when those countries, I guess also those countries tended to have higher rates of non-communicable disease at the same time. And so you had this combination of um, more food flowing to these higher-income countries, kind of middle- and higher-income countries, and that protective effect um, having a bigger impact because of that rates of non-communicable disease. A study published October 2022 in Nature finds 65% of all insect populations they examined could go extinct this century. Does that apply to the pollinators? What do you think? Yes. As insects are going extinct, pollinators are definitely going to go extinct as well. They are suffering from the same stressors that all other insects are. So you're you're seeing major land use change that's, that's removing their habitat, um, also fragmenting their habitat so that they can't migrate to adapt from different stressors. You have climate change that's changing their suitable range where they used to live, so they have to migrate. They're also being infiltrated by new uh, insects that are coming into their range because of climate change. There's new pathogens that are preying on them. There's an asynchrony between when a kind of a, a timing mismatch that may be occurring between when pollinators might emerge from the ground in, in the spring and when the plants that they rely on are, are emerging because of different environmental cues getting disrupted because of climate change. And also liberal use of, of pesticides, especially this particularly toxic class of, of pesticides called neonicotinoids that have well-known lethal and sublethal effects on bees that are being used. And these are the most common class of, of pesticides in the U.S. They've been banned in the EU, but they're very common in the rest of the world. So all of these stressors are, are affecting bees, they're affecting other insects, and so they're definitely at risk of both extinction, but also you know, just general declines in abundance and, and range. Now, your study goes beyond health to look at the economic impacts, and there's a lot between the farmer and the consumer. There's a whole industry going on there, transportation, storage, sales, supermarkets, all of that. But my question is, how can anyone know what large-scale agricultural production would have been if a full roster of pollinators were there? So what we had was really a combination of two pieces of information that helped us understand that. One is a model that really tried to capture, based on what people are growing now in every country of all of these different pollinated foods, how much could they theoretically grow if everything were perfect? And this is not just related to pollination, but it's also if they were applying fertilizers and using improved seed and using kind of industrial agricultural techniques, how much could they theoretically grow? And to understand that, they looked at yields all over the world and said, well, based on the climate constraints in your country, here's what other countries around the world are growing of similar crops. And, and based on your climate constraints, here's what kind of the, the 90th percentile yield of that certain crops is. So that gives you an idea of 
the difference between what you're currently growing and what you could conceivably grow. And then to understand what the percentage of that gap comes from just inadequate pollination, here we relied on a lot of empirical data where one of our colleagues, Lucas Garibaldi, led the study a few years ago where he and his team collected a ton of data from 344 different farms around the world on four different continents growing all kinds of crops under all kinds of different management conditions. And what they were able to do was, while looking at these farms, also look at what pollinators were visiting these farms and how often and what what the diversity of pollinators was. And they could isolate the importance of having more and having diverse pollinators to yields across all these different crops and across all these different geographies. And so controlling for all those other factors, what role does pollination play in suppressing yields below what they could currently grow? So, And we all talk about the bees. I just want to put in a word for the moths. As a gardener, I know moths are always busy in my vegetable beds. Can farms push production with chemical fertilizers to the point where a drop in pollination can be overcome? There are certainly ways that you can increase yields sort of via conventional agricultural techniques, like using fertilizers, like using improved seeds, like using pesticides to keep crop damage down. The trouble is is that these often have kind of collateral environmental impacts. So you can pollute waterways, you can contaminate the soil, You can have, and especially in the case of pesticides, you can have sort of collateral damage on the insects that you need to pollinate your crops. The benefit of supporting pollinators as opposed to pursuing these other techniques is that pollinators have no environmental harms. They are part of nature, and so they are going to improve crop yields relatively cheaply and without this kind of collateral damage that you might inflict from using more intense techniques. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Dr. Matthew R. Smith with a new paper adding up the costs for all of us as food pollinators decline around the world. Matt, what does your new study say for the global estimated loss of fruit, vegetables, and nuts due to pollinator decline alone? Uh, Yeah, what we did in our study was quantify the reduction in production that we're suffering from having too little pollinators. And what we found was that between 3 and 5% of the production of these different foods, of, of fruits, nuts, and vegetables, is missing due to insufficient pollination. Why do statistics show North America has about 12% more fruit, veggies, and nuts than would be expected if there were enough pollinators. So yes, in North America, if globally there was more pollination and there was an increase in global food production, a lot of foods would become cheaper to produce. And so a lot of these higher value foods like fruits and vegetables and nuts would likely become grown in lower and lower middle income countries And higher-income countries would just import that food. It would be cheaper for them to just import that food than it would be to grow it themselves. And I was surprised to see Russia near the top of the list for, quote, current life years lost attributable to insufficient pollination. I guess it's too much to ask of one study why that is, but it is surprising, isn't it? 
We found a similar result in an earlier paper that you mentioned in the introduction where we ran kind of a hypothetical study where we said, what if there were zero pollinators around the world and what would that do for production of these healthy foods? And that was clearly an extreme case, not a very likely case at all, but it was meant to just kind of quantify the net benefit of having pollinators. And we found a similar effect that Russia had a fairly high rate of disease that was, I guess, attributable to either losing pollinators or not having enough pollinators. And I think that's really a result of two things. One is that rates of these chronic diseases are fairly high in Russia, so eating more of these foods would would confer a, a considerable benefit to public health. And also that they are at the cusp of income where if prices did change a little bit, that the change in the food that is flowing to Russia might change quite a bit. And so the combination of those two factors really contributes to them being a either beneficiary of having more pollination or victim of having too little pollination, I guess, depending on how you frame it. And it's not one size fits all the world over because you found some regions like Australia, quote, would have seen relatively little difference in mortality under higher pollination scenarios compared with the present day. So it's not just one way all around the world. Some places seem to be still getting away with it. Yes. For some countries... Either they would not change their diets very much if if food production changed, or they are already eating quite a bit of some of these foods, and so relatively small changes in the diet would not confer a big health benefit. So either one of those factors could affect who might see a, a large change if there were more pollination. Why did your team choose Nepal, Honduras, and Nigeria for more detailed case studies? Well, we really just wanted to choose countries that were fairly different from each other. I guess all low- and lower-middle-income countries, but very different geographies, very different agricultural systems, very different sizes of country, to capture how each of these factors might affect how these countries would respond to higher pollination. And for these countries in particular, as you mentioned, we found that the health benefits of having more pollination were concentrated in middle-income countries, higher-income countries. But for the lower and lower-middle-income countries, you saw a much larger economic effect from having more pollination. And we found between 12 and 31% of agricultural value, so the economic value that's, that's gained from growing these foods, is lost because of having too little pollination. And in these countries where agriculture makes up a large percentage of the total economy, that would have a huge effect on both the income of farmers and the, the larger agricultural industry, And that might also have trickle-down effects to their health as they're able to afford health care and they're able to just engage in practices that would improve their health. But yeah, those were the three case studies we looked at for just looking at this economic effect. From what we know so far, do you think pollinator populations are at a crisis point or heading there? 
They are certainly heading there. It's very difficult to know the state of pollinators because it is very intensive, labor-intensive to run a study where you are monitoring pollinators over large areas. So there are studies here and there that have, that have monitored populations, but we don't know the full global picture. So it's very difficult to understand whether we are at a crisis or we are merely in trouble. <laughs> but we are certainly trending towards a crisis with all of the different stressors that are affecting pollinators. There has to be major concerted effort at a scale that matches the rate of change of these populations that would offset these stressors that are affecting them. So, yes, we're certainly trending in a dangerous direction, but it's difficult to know whether we are at the brink or not. Well, I want to get more into solutions in just a minute. But first, as you mentioned, in 2015, you led a paper in the top medical journal, Lancet. Your team analyzed what would happen if we lose half or even all animal pollinators. Matt, what does happen if the bees, bats, and moths disappear? That was an extreme case. <laughs> we, were, we were not quite predicting that all pollinators would disappear. But it, what it did capture was the extreme case of no pollinators and how, by doing that, it quantifies their contribution to our food production and our health. And so what we found in that study was that if there was a full loss of pollinators, that you would see a reduction in global fruit, vegetables, and nuts and seeds between 16 and 23% of production. And that would cause something like 1.4 million additional deaths a year via predominantly the rise in, in non-communicable disease. We also looked at how micronutrient deficiencies might change because not only do these foods protect against chronic disease, but they're also suppliers of important nutrients to the diet like vitamin A, folate. And what we found was by far the, the bigger effect comes from by rises in chronic disease but there is, especially in areas that are suffering from higher rates of malnutrition-related disease, such as sub-Saharan Africa and parts of South America, that you would see a rise in disease there. But most of the effect was from rises in non-communicable diseases. And in your paper, you say farmers are losing production in Poland for lack of pollinators. Can they do something about that? Can they import or breed more essential bugs like bees and moths? Luckily, the solutions to lost pollinators are relatively well established. There are some things we can't change on a farmer level, like climate change, but there are other ways that an individual farmer or a conservation district or a state could introduce policies that would benefit pollinators. So these are things like setting aside parts of your farm so that pollinators have a place to live that are close to your crops. And this is, could be just a relatively small part of your farm where just bees are able to nest or other insects are able to nest and live, especially in developed countries where areas where there are large monoculture fields where there's kind of a big field growing one thing and that field just all blooms at once and then kind of goes away at once. The bees have a, an ability to eat then, but the rest of the year they don't have very much to eat if there aren't other flowering plants nearby. So 
if farmers are able to plant a diversity of flowering plants, either kind of on the edges of the fields or interspersed among the crops, then it would give pollinators more to eat, and so they would have just a better nutritional status. And then limiting the use of these harmful pesticides like neonicotinoids that are a little too good at killing pests because they kill a lot of harmful pests, but they also kill the beneficial insects that crops need as well. So this suite of interventions, so habitat, better nutrition, and removing pesticides, all have big effects on supporting pollinators, and luckily they can be done at a range of scales from the farmer all the way up to a, a country. Or a, in the case of the EU, which banned neonicotinoids, you know, you can do it even, even larger. You would think farmers, especially long-time farmers, would be aware of these losses. Is there farm-based activism calling for more pollinator protection? That's a good question. I actually don't know of any farmer-based action where they've intervened. Now, one interesting thing about your study is it, it has something to say, I think, to the environmental movement because you're moving beyond just ecological systems into the broader impacts like human health and the economy, and that's something really valuable in this study. That's part of the, of the goal of the study and part of the goal of the field that we are a part of, which is to connect some of these large environmental changes, not only to environmental outcomes, which are of course important, but also to other consequences that might strike a chord with people that might be making decisions. So if you're a person making a decision on whether you should ban pesticides in your state and you realize it's not only an issue of biodiversity and harming pollinators, but maybe it's an issue of the local economy or if it's an issue of public health as people aren't able to eat the foods that are keeping them healthy, then it broadens the lens of the potential harms that are being inflicted by some of these big forces and it really hits home as it hits your pocketbook or you know hits your doctor visit i guess you know, as you've you just have more ways that you can now understand that that this change affects affects you personally or affects the people that you're your neighbors or your other people in your city matthew smith what is next in your own research right now the the biggest Thing that I am working on is looking at this project in Nepal. So this previous project was great because it looked at the whole world and it kind of gave you this global picture of how pollinator loss is affecting people's health on this big scale. And this project that I'm working on now looks at a very small scale at this individual little spot in Nepal called Jumla where People are very remote. It's very far from big cities. And we are trying to understand the importance of pollinators to the local food system, how much of what they eat is directly attributable to pollination. And so I'm just a small part in this big study, but they've collected a lot of data on the pollinators, on the, all the different types of insects that visit the apples and the beans and the pumpkins that grow there, and try to understand how much are those crops dependent on those pollinators? If those pollinators either declined or through interventions, if they came back, how much 
would nutrition change and how much would that affect health? So this is a very kind of applied study that looks very specifically at this problem at a, at a very small scale. But it's very satisfying because I can actually see the outcomes or, or understand the, the people that might be affected as opposed to looking at these kind of global scale models. So it's exciting. From the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, we've been speaking with research scientist Matthew R. Smith. The open access paper is called Pollinator Deficits, Food Consumption, and Consequences for Human Health, a Modeling Study. Find this and more to follow up in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Matthew, thank you for your insight into the creatures that help feed us all. Thanks, Alex. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Not reported in North America or Europe, Argentina has been roasting in climate-changed heat. It is summer there. After the warmest November to January since 1961, 27 cities broke absolute temperature records in mid-February, the eighth consecutive heat wave in a row. It was 38.1 degrees C, just over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, in the capital, Buenos Aires, the highest in four decades. Nighttime temperatures there only went to 28.5 C, or 83 Fahrenheit, and those are deadly nights when people don't get a chance to cool off. But Argentina and surrounding countries in Central South America have been in a terrible drought since 2019. According to New Science, with the last four months of 2022 receiving only 44% of the average precipitation, the lowest rainfall in 35 years. Wheat and soybean crops are suffering, with low yields expected. That further drains the Argentine economy, now wrestling with inflation and close to financial collapse. Uruguay has declared an agricultural emergency. The heat from global warming is hurting crops, but drought is wrecking them. But is this long dry spell caused by climate change? Find out next week as we interview the lead author of the new science, Paola Arias. Heat stress in South America or China changes the economy and a culture around the world. Think globally. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Radio EcoShock and caring about our world. 